Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. In the 1760s, almost no one would be worse at fighting for their independence than the American colonies. They were completely incapable of organized resistance. One's loyalty was to his state, as the idea of being an American was almost meaningless. Few people even clamored for democracy, because Europe and the rest of the world thought that the highest form of government was monarchy. Democracy was something that you read about in your classical education that Athens tried to do, but it just led to internal chaos and disorder for how rowdy it was. And after all, most American colonists considered themselves British, or at least subjects of the British Empire. But if you fast forward a decade later, by 1776, the United States is formally declaring itself as a new nation in which all men are created equal. They're able to put together a continental army that challenges the preeminent military superpower on planet Earth. Beyond that, many people are starting to consider themselves as Americans. So how did so much change in 10 years? You grew up in the United States, you learn about American history, and it's almost assumed that there was this American identity that just needed to be woken up and triggered by acts of repression by the British government. But it's a lot more complicated than that. To untangle this in this episode, I'm talking with Michael Troy, who's host of the American Revolution podcast. His show is a chronological history of the Revolutionary War, and he goes deep into details because at the time of our recording, he was 75 episodes into the show and only up to the year 1775. In this episode, we discuss, among many things, the Stamp Act and why Britain's backing down may have made things worse, the Liberty Riots, which led to the military occupation of Boston in 1768, how the Coercive Acts helped unite the colonies rather than isolate Massachusetts, and the many ways that Britain could have avoided the Revolutionary War altogether if they would have been more diplomatic, and what history would have looked like if America had never gained independence. So we get into all these different things, and I hope you enjoy this discussion with Michael Troy. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to be here. You're a few dozen episodes into your podcast. Uh, as of this recording, how many episodes have you done? I think I just published episode 75 last week. Okay, so that's um, my, my division isn't great. How many dozen would that be? Uh, over, <laughs> over six. Okay. There we go. Uh, thinking yeah. of my multiples of 12. Okay. So you're over six dozen episodes into the podcast. And something I'm curious about is, have you seen any sort of benefit of studying the revolutionary war period and getting beyond the middle school, high school, college level analysis that most of us have, if we have that much? Yeah, I think most people think of the revolution. They, they think of maybe three or four major battles and we got independence they don't get into the whole story, what was really going on with the people at the time, the struggles, why they did what they did, and and you know really that it was a about an eight year war with a quite a bit of a struggle even before the war started. So it was really a lengthy process. And that's what we're going to touch on today: are the main triggering points that caused the revolution to happen. And I'm very curious on your take that you think is something that has been either not focused on enough or maybe there's something that you think has been overemphasized. It's not just a few battles. It's not just the Boston Massacre, a few people throwing rocks at soldiers, and then suddenly that causes the whole thing to go off. So 
Yeah, let's go through this. I mean, you've highlighted a lot of these uh, issues in your podcast, and I'd like you to discuss how all these work together to cause the revolution. So let's start off with something that people do know well, and that is the Stamp Act. Um, Many people hate the Postal Service, but um, I'm not sure there's many people who would uh, engage in an armed revolt because the price of postage increases in three or four cents. Are colonials more price sensitive to the cost of postage or uh, how would you describe this as one of the first triggering events that leads to the revolution? Really, that's why I guess one of the misconceptions of the revolution, a lot of people think that it was caused by high taxes and it really wasn't. Uh, Colonists were taxed less than individuals in Britain were overall and um, very happily paid taxes to their colonial governments. What they were not ready to do was pay taxes to parliament where they had no representation, the old taxation without representation line we often hear. Uh, And the stamp tax was the first attempt to do that. There had been some earlier attempts like the Sugar Act and things like that, but those could be written off as as, uh, import duties, which there wasn't as much agreement uh, on that that, that those were unacceptable. Uh, The stamp tax taxed all paper production essentially in America. If you wanted to produce a magazine or a newspaper or have a contract for uh, that would be admissible in court, all of those would have to have tax duties on them. And the reason the colonists were really so upset about this, again, was not the amount so much as it was the precedent. They had seen the way England had sucked the money out of places that were not represented in Parliament. Uh, Ireland and Scotland are examples of that. Um, Ireland especially, where they they had no representation in Parliament, and and Britain just really kind of sucked them dry of any excess wealth anytime they could. Um, Places like Bengal and India experienced the same thing. And even though this was just a little tax, it was the foot in the door that was going to lead to more and more and more and more down the road. And they did not want to go down that road. Right. And that's a good point where you and others have really tried to look at things from a global perspective, that Americans are aware of Britain's global empire and the colonies they have across the world and uh, see the precedent happening. Um, One point you made is that Britain's backing down on this may have made things worse. So what do you mean? Do Do you think that things could have gone better if they would not have relented? If Britain had really stamped down at the time or come up with a, a minor compromise by perhaps giving the, the, the colonists a few representatives in parliament that would have been really ineffective and in really accomplishing much of anything, um, I think the colonies were not in a position, and we're talking about 1765 now, to really start a revolution. The people really hadn't made that, developed that mindset. And uh, they really didn't have as much resources as they would a decade later. If there had been any sort of really outbreak at that time, I think Britain would have won much more easily. The fact that Britain relented eased things for a time, but it gave the colonists the idea that, well, if we just stand up to London and say, no, we're not going to accept what you tell us we have to do, we will eventually win. And that that attitude grew in the colonies over the next decade. And um was a problem when when things did go down in the 1770s. With the state of affairs in the 1760s, what did that look like in the colonies? I, my information is very scant. It comes from mostly a biography on Benjamin Franklin I read, and they made the point that 
He was one of the very few people who was a national figure, who knew people in the different colonies and had a voice that could be projected to them via, via all of his printing activities. But the the states were pretty set off from one another, and there was very little of a collective identity. So is this the state of affairs in the 1760s? That's true. Uh, that That is something that changed from the 1760s to the 1770s. But especially in the 1760s, colonies did not talk to each other. They really weren't even supposed to trade directly with each other. If, if Massachusetts wanted to send something to New York, it had to go to London first. Uh, that didn't always happen, but that's the way it was supposed to happen. Uh, but yeah, the colonies did not really uh, think of their neighbors as fellow colonists. They thought of them as another country almost. That they that, that, And one reason for this was that they were in competition very often. Uh, many of the colonies were claiming the same Western lands and um, didn't really go to war because they knew London would have to sort it out for them at the end. But they were competitors for the same resources. And this is an aside, but uh, your description brings something to mind. I recently did an episode on uh, mass panic and mass hallucination, and the Salem witch trials were a part of that, which is in the late 1600s, not not even a century before this. So could be within living memory of some people at this time in the 1760s. Somebody asked me, what happened to the Puritans? It seems we talk about them in the Salem witch trials and maybe the first Thanksgiving, but then they exit the story, it seems. are they? Do they just uh, assimilate into the wider culture? And there's different colonies are set up. There's the middle colonies, these tobacco plantationists. There's southern colonies, these people who come from the Caribbean and work on sugarcane. Have these differences mostly disappeared, or is there still a distinct New England, New England Puritan, uh, increased Mather, Cotton Mather, versus a tobacco plantationist, versus a person who has sugarcane? Yeah, there, there really is a big distinction. Um, it's especially noticeable, say, between New England and New York, uh, which had very different cultures, very different backgrounds. Of course, New York developed from the Dutch settlers who started there originally. Uh, but yeah, New England, the Puritans had mellowed out, but they were still very much there. Um, if you want to talk about something that most people don't really talk about as far as a, uh, the revolution, um, there was actually an incident where Britain just started talking about the idea of putting Anglican bishops in New England in the 1760s. And the colonists just went nuts over that. There was no way they wanted Anglican bishops in their in their Puritan environment. Um, so there, there, there really was there were still very many um, um, holdovers from the, the, the Puritan radicalism that we saw in the 1600s. Okay. And uh, something else that you discussed on the episode were the Liberty Riots, which um, was interesting because uh, you discuss how it leads to the military occupation of Boston. Um, I think I always just assumed that British soldiers were always there, uh, as if an empire would just staff its overseas colony with soldiers without even thinking of the pay. <laughs> That'd be pretty expensive. So yeah. what happens with the Liberty Riots and how does it lead to military occupation? Yeah, there, well, there were always some soldiers in the colonies, but we're really talking like dozens or maybe hundreds over the entire North American continent. It was not a lot. Um, and most of them were there. Uh, you know, they might put a dozen soldiers in a fort that wasn't particularly important at the moment just to make sure nobody came in and stole the cannon or something like that. They weren't really there to do law enforcement or keep order or anything like that. They were just kind of there to watch British property. Um, the colonies very much liked 
governing themselves, defending themselves. They knew they could rely on British regulars if, if something terrible happened, like a huge Indian uprising or the French invaded them or something like that. But by and large, they wanted to run their own defense and they did it primarily through the militia system. Um, so when Britain started trying to enforce things th that the colonists did not like, one of the weaknesses, of course, of a militia system is that militias are all volunteers, and if they don't want to enforce a law they don't like, then the law doesn't get enforced. And uh, the Liberty Riots was an attempt um, to enforce some very unpopular tariffs that were passed after the Stamp Act. Uh, these were the Townsend Acts, uh, including the tax on sugar and tea. Uh, tea especially is the one we all know about. Uh, and the people of Boston essentially rose up when a ship named the Liberty, which was owned by a young merchant named John Hancock, was seized by officials for evading tariffs. And uh, they basically forced the entire customs agency to leave Boston and go live on an island out in the harbor for a few months because if they showed their face in Boston, they were going to get beaten up or possibly worse. Here's something I'm curious about. We talk about things from the perspective of the United States, at least in the United States, if you're hearing this story. Um, I've actually heard from British people that they know almost nothing about the Revolutionary War. Um, to them, it's as opaque as, uh, I guess, for Americans, the Napoleonic Wars. Maybe you heard about it, but you really don't know what's going on. Sure. What's happening in Britain in the 1760s? They're passing all these different acts, but I, I can't imagine they would pass restrictive measures on colonists just out of the cruelty of their heart. They're, were they in a budget crunch, or is there some other reason that this is happening? Well, yeah, the, the big problem was they were still trying to get out of debt from the Seven Years' War, something that was known as the French and Indian War here in America. But that really was a world war. And the way Britain was able to win such wars was to borrow a lot of money and build up uh, their armies and navies to defeat the enemy. And they actually had to spend a lot of money to pay colonial militias here in America to get them to fight the French Canadians, uh, which eventually resulted in, in Britain taking over Canada at the end of that war. But it left Britain in, in very heavy debt, and their economy was not doing particularly well. So they actually tried to levy some taxes in England, but because the English people were represented in Parliament, they balked, and Parliament was very reluctant to raise taxes in England. So then British officials, of course, thought, well, we spent all this money to you know, make North America free. Maybe they need to start kicking in for some of this. And that was you know, where they tried to do a series of different taxes in different ways to see what would work and what would be most profitable and what the colonists would most accept so that they could pay off this huge debt. And uh, in some ways, the United States does this exact thing that they rebelled against 200 years ago. Uh, I found as an expatriate that your tax that you earn in a foreign country is liable to be taxed by the U.S. government, so you could be double taxed. Because uh, And America is the only country on earth that does this. Their argument might be, well, you get the benefits of the global security umbrella of the United States, but it's a way to tax people who don't otherwise have representation. So I, I guess the moral of the story, I don't want to say that the ghost of George III is haunting us from beyond the grave, but more... If a government can tax people who don't have any other means to have any other recourse, they will. I guess that's just sort of a universal feature of humanity. I don't know. 
yeah, I think that's pretty universal. And you can look, I can see it even in America. I mean, if you've ever, ever stayed in a hotel or in a parking lot, you know the taxes there are way more expensive than any other taxes you pay on any other product or service. And the reason for that is out-of-staters stay in hotels. They're not represented in the legislature, and they're not going to be able to fight it. Yeah, there you go. So the spirit of King George lives in all of us in different ways. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> And George, too. I mean, is this the period where he, his mental illness is really starting to crank up? Do I have my time period right, or is that later? No, that really is much later. George III was he, he took o, took office uh, right at the end of the uh, French and Indian War. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. For the final years of the American Revolution, and he was he was really kind of seen as a bright, shining new light in Britain at the time. He was, I think, in his mid twenties. Um, he, he had taken over from his grandfather. His father had predeceased him. He was the first president in, oh, sorry, President King in several generations. Uh, who spoke English as a first language and really took an interest in the English government. George the, George the first and George the second were both born and raised in Germany, uh, Hanover, which was a German state at the time. Uh, they both had German wives. They lived, lived, you know, most of their lives in Germany and considered themselves German princes who happened to have taken over, uh, England almost by accident. Um, George III was born in England and raised in England and spoke English. He, he did take a German wife, but um, but he was somebody who really took much more of an interest in government and governing, and at the same time respected the the power and authority of Parliament. He did not want to become a despot or a tyrant or you know, rule with an iron fist like the kings of old or something like that. He really was a big advocate of parliamentary rule but saw his role as being an advocate for setting the course for the country and, and, that, and that sort of thing. And he really, I think, did a reasonably good job at it. As it turned out, the things he chose to do turned out to be poor policy, but they seemed very good at the time. And I think everybody was pretty happy with him. He really lucked out, or not lucked out, he suffered the unfortunate luck of having one of the most important historical documents in history, the Declaration, spent a good amount of time talking about how terrible he is. So it's hard to live that down. But like you said, he has some many good qualities. And I read something about him that he was one of the very few European monarchs who did not have a mistress, which in the 18th century, being a monarch and not having a mistress is, I was about to say that's on the level of being a bishop or cardinal in terms of personal piety, but I can't say that they would have been any better at this time. I don't know what's going on with the papacy at this time. but yeah, It's probably better than a lot of the Yeah, it probably are. is. So he is, um, in terms of yeah, moral he brightness, was, he's doing well for himself. He was, yeah, he was actually a pretty simple guy in, in a lot of ways. He, 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 right. He, he had no mistresses. He did not like... Uh, carousing and drinking and, and that sort of thing. He actually ate the same meal almost every day for about 30 years. His simple mutton and turnip dish that that was his dinner every single day, except for occasional, you know, banquets that he had to do and was not particularly happy about. Right. He was, was his nickname Farmer George? Yeah, I think that is something that people call in mind is back. All right. So George III. Well, yeah, I'm glad that you uh, mentioned that because uh, we don't see things from the English side, but they're not doing these things in a vacuum. And right. 
Uh, and something that you spent a couple episodes on is the coercive acts or the intolerable intolerable acts. And again, anyone who remembers this is thinking of just a checklist of cruelty against the colonists and trying to exploit them, which you can definitely argue is the case, but there's a rationale to it. Uh, something you mentioned is that part of the strategy was an attempt to isolate Massachusetts, but it backfired. So what were the intention? What was the intended result of the coercive acts? Okay, before I get into that, I want to say one more thing about King George. He was not really setting policy. He was letting Parliament set policy. So Parliament was the one making all these new taxes and doing all these things. And the king was basically letting Parliament do what Parliament was supposed to do. So the blame really should be on Parliament for this stuff, not the king. Now, the right. king backed it up and, and, and agreed with it all later. And that's where we're going to get into the coercive acts. The coercive acts were a response to the Boston Tea Party, which hopefully everybody knows is uh, Britain had a big tax on tea. They tried to foist the tea on the colonies and the colonists threw the tea into the harbor because they didn't want to get tricked into paying this tax and then have that precedent of uh, colonists pay taxes. Um, so when that happened, the British saw this as an act of anarchy, uh, chaos, uh, defiance of government. And they thought that Massachusetts had to be held responsible for this act of destruction. And so they passed the Coercive Acts, which did a number of things. It closed Boston Harbor until the tea was paid for. They didn't explain who was going to pay for it or how, but they just closed the, closed the harbor. Uh, the other thing they did that was probably more offensive to the people of Massachusetts is they took away the right to hold town meetings and the right to elect the uh, governor's council. So they were basically losing their right of self-government. And Britain was doing this as a way to show the rest of the colonies, well, if you behave poorly and defy us, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to lose more rights. We're going to come down hard on you, and we're going to teach you a lesson. They had done this sort of thing before. Um, when New York had uh, refused to obey the um, um, act re requiring um, the housing of soldiers in private property, and uh, they came down really hard on, on New York's uh, legislature and um, wanted to basically said that the legislature could not pass any laws until they changed this this ruling and, and New York quickly backed down. So in other words, when a state gets out of order or a colony gets out of order, you come down very hard just on that colony. They serve an example to all the other colonies and everybody gets into line. In this case, the other colonies didn't see this as a cautionary tale they saw it as well we need to stick together and we need to back massachusetts continued defiance of this crackdown or it's going to come hit us all sooner or later so we hang together or we hang separately and it really united the the, the colonies in a way of saying if you know if we don't all stick together and fight this now um you know it's going to hurt all of us Hey everyone, Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. 
I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's another factor that I think is often taken for granted, this emerging collective identity of the colonies that they need to band together to not be exploited. Where does this come about? It seems like that doesn't exist in the 1750s, 1760s. So why is it in the 1770s there is a sense of this collective identity? It really was an intentional effort. Uh, the, the people who were resisting British policies understood that they individual colony had no way of resisting on their own. The only way they were going to have a chance is if they stuck together. And when they when all the colonies united to fight the Stamp Act and they won, that showed them, look, when we unite and we feel very strongly about something, we, we can win. And so they made more of an effort to unite and they formed the committees of correspondence. These were essentially informal groups. Sometimes they were members of colonial legislatures, but they could have just as easily been private citizens. They informally corresponded with one another on a regular basis. So people in Massachusetts would write people in Virginia and South Carolina, and people in New York would write people in Pennsylvania or whatever. And they got to know each other. They got to know the leaders in the other in the other colonies. They got to know what the issues were in those colonies that they were facing, and they they really began to coalesce into a community of common interests. Uh, this just came to my mind. I don't know if you've come across this, but what you described, this otherwise disaggregated group of colonies coming together in one collective identity, this is very similar to what plays out in other places about a century later with Italy, where there are all these little uh, principalities or city-states or um, papal states of the Republic of Genoa, the Republic of Venice, the Republic of Pisa. And there's a centuries-long effort to unite them and consolidate them into one nation, which does not happen until very late and in the 19th century. Germany, the same, the Deutschland, Deutschland, Uber, all else. The idea yeah. is that the nation is bigger than Saxony or Bavaria or, or whatnot. But this doesn't happen until the 1870s. Have you come across anything of people who are trying these consolidation projects looking at America as an example of how to do this? I'm not sure America really stood out as an example. I think it, I think it's more of a general 
when you are facing a common foreign threat, it forces you to put aside your local differences and, and come together. And I think that's what's happened in each of the cases you've uh, mentioned. Makes sense. Yeah. Sometimes it's not, it's something that just happens. It's not this planned thing. It's a happy accident, I guess. And the fact that they all share common languages and cultures and stuff, you know, helps a lot in that whole process. And it's similar. This isn't uh, finished, but many people talk about the Middle East where you have nations that aren't really nations. They're just sort of put together after World War One, and they're trying to find a common identity. Sometimes they can different sectarian or ethnic groups can unite together against an external threat. But when they're on their own devices, then it's harder. So this is a very much an ongoing story. In terms of planned correspondence, um, there were bits and pieces of them trying to consolidate an intentional consolidation. And you focus on the committees of correspondence and they're making organized resistance possible. Whereas in the past, in the 1760s, there would not have been a united front and the ability of a nation of the United States to uh, put together a continental army wouldn't have been possible. So what did they do to make organized resistance possible? Well, one, one of the main reasons for the committees of correspondence, and they were actually in place long before the, uh, the coercive acts came out, but the, the colonists realized that uh, London was trying to adopt a policy of divide and conquer. They, they'd repealed the Stamp Act because that had united the colonies, and they said, okay, guys, everything's back to normal, everything's fine, um, we're all going to be happy friends together again. But then behind the scenes, they started making little changes to uh, um, the colonial structures here and there. Uh, for example, they they took over um, uh, the judiciary in Massachusetts used to be paid for by the colonial governments. Well, Parliament graciously offered to start paying for the courts themselves. And of course, whoever pays the courts is going to be able to call the tune a little bit more. Um, they were basically getting the courts on their side. And they made little changes in, in, in other colonies as well. And the colonial government saw this and said, well, wait, they're, you know, they're, they're shifting things here, shifting things there. They're, they're positioning themselves for the next major crisis and making sure they're in a much more powerful position. And so we need to keep track of what they're doing in all the other colonies and how they're, how they're making these little tiny changes here and there and how that's going to affect us down the road. And that was really the reason that they wanted to start writing to the other colonies. What's, what's going on in your colony? What changes are happening? What's London um, doing to you this year that they didn't do to you last year. And uh, that way they would have a better idea of what London's overall strategy was. I read one historian who said that the loss of the American colonies was one of the biggest blunders in British imperial history, that at every step they refused compromise. They made it impossible to work with them. And Benjamin Franklin, who spent about 10 years in England, left a mock arrived as a moderate and left as a radical because he saw that it was completely impossible to work with parliament at all. Uh, can you see a scenario where England could have effectively prevented a revolution and continue to govern the United States as a colony like it did with Canada and Australia and keep them in the Commonwealth? Oh, absolutely. If they hadn't overplayed their hand with the Stamp Act and then tried to crush um, other things as as you know, they tried to there were a lot of things that they tried to implement, very minor taxes that were going to raise almost no money at all. And what we forget is that Britain benefited greatly economically from the colonies without levying a single tax. They uh, 
the, the they set all the trade rules between the colonies and the mother countries, and they set them greatly to their advantage. And so they were getting a great deal of raw materials and trade and other things coming into their country, supporting British manufacturing, which of course the government did tax, so they were indirectly uh, generating revenues from that the good economy. Uh, they could have continued on that policy and done very well and kept the colonies very happy. And there probably wouldn't have been a fight until uh, probably the mid 1800s when, when Britain did away with slavery, because that probably would have ticked off the southern colonies as much as it ticked off the southern states when the north tried hmm. to do it. Yeah. And just to uh, kind of continue this line of counterfactuals, the big debate in the early American Republic is between the Jeffersonian and Hamiltonian visions of whether America will be a self-educated yeomanry and be farmers like Jefferson wanted or go on a model of finance, banking, manufacturing, the industrial British model like Hamilton wanted. Do you think that mm -hmm. things could have skewed more to the Jefferson side if America would have remained a colony or it would have maintained a similar course of evolution? That's a little harder to say. I think New England and a lot of the northern regions we're very much moving into to mercantilism and industry and that sort of thing. Uh, one of the things that Britain did not allow the colonies to do was develop a lot of manufacturing. Uh, there were a lot of restrictions on, on what sort of factories and industries they could have because they wanted the colonies to be shipping those raw materials to England so England could have that, that manufacturing. Um, if there had not been a revolution I think industry would have probably developed in New England, but it would have evolved a lot more slowly over time. Right. And it's not as if America becomes a manufacturing powerhouse in the early 19th century. It's a very long and very prolonged process. And England is... That's true. But they were really pushed into it with independence because once they were independent, they really had... They just didn't have the stuff they needed to run, run the country. They, they needed to develop an industry to underwrite a lot of it. And that's where New England and some of the middle colonies really started to take off of this stuff. And uh, one more <laughs> counterfactual thing, unless something bops into my head. Uh, with the abolition of slavery, uh, so the transatlantic slave trade is shut down in, what is it, the 18, 1808, 1810s? Is somewhere around there? Is that right? Yeah, I think it's 1808. Okay, 1808. I forget what policy Britain has with its colonies. Um, like any empire, they have a different set of rules at the home versus uh, elsewhere. Was there a ban on slavery within its colonies at some point? And if America had remained one, would that have moved up the date of abolition? Yeah, the uh, British allowed slavery in their colonies and actually tolerated it in England itself. People say that there were no slave laws in England, but if colonists brought their slaves back to the mother country when they were staying there for a few years, the, the, the slaves remained slaves for the most part. Um, Britain started to develop its abolitionist movement in the early 1800s. And it was sometime, I believe, in the 1830s that it finally abolished uh, slavery throughout the colonies. I interestingly, too, I, I might add, um, the abolition movement really directly grew out of the American Revolution. I'm not sure we would have seen an abolition movement either in the North or in England had there not been an American Revolution. Because the revolution really was the time that they really began to popularize the idea that all men are created equal and that there are certain inalienable rights such as liberty. And those were not universally accepted truths before the 1760s, 1770s. Those were things that 
America really made popular through the war. And of course, abolitionists took that to its natural conclusion. Hey, wait, all men are created equal. Well, we have all these men over here without equal rights and without basic liberties. And I think abolitionists in both England and America really took heart from those principles that were set during the American Revolution, even though they didn't, of course, live up to those principles until decades later. That's really interesting because uh, from what I know of the early abolitionists, many of them were Mennonites or Quakers Mm -hmm. um, that were not heavily involved in the revolutionary effort. And that might have been due to religious understandings that you have to obey and be subservient to the government installed above you based on some scriptural readings and their interpretations of that. Uh, So that's it. I, I guess, but I guess they wouldn't have seen that as a contradiction. They would believe in the universal dignity of man and universal rights, just not necessarily the rebellion part. Do I have that right or am I off? um, One of of the misconceptions I think is that slavery was controversial before the American revolution. And it really wasn't. The uh, Quakers did not ban slavery within their Quaker communities until 1774. Um, There had been a growing anti-slavery movement within the Quaker community for, for a few decades before they reached that moment. But you can go back to like, I think it was in the 1750s. uh, I have a record of one Quaker uh, meeting that expelled a member because he was talking too much about abolition and it annoyed them. So the Quaker, (laughs) the the idea that that slavery was wrong was really not a concept among much of anyone until the decades leading up to the American Revolution. Yeah, definitely. Uh, It was. For England, um, at some point after the Middle Ages, when um, there are no longer slaves within England, when the feudal model breaks down, but when enslavement begins to happen in order to have enough manpower to farm in the colonies and the Caribbean and other places, then there's this the, the moral hypocrisy or moral laundering of, well, we'll do it over there, not here, but over there. So Even though there wasn't slavery in England, it was very much uh, the notion that um, you were born into a certain life and you would live that life. And there was very little chance that you would ever deviate from that life. If you, if you were born uh, the son of a farmer, you would become a farmer. If you were born the son of a blacksmith, you would become a blacksmith. Um, if you were born the son of a prince, well, lucky you. But yeah, it, there was not an idea of that we're all free to choose our path for ourselves. Um, you, you were born into a station in life and you lived in that station in life. And, and, Slavery was an extreme extension of that, but that was um, not it, it was not antithetical to the way most British people live their lives. Yeah, I mean, seeing it as a natural extension of the class system, that if you have a class system anyway, of course, slavery makes sense. You're merely at the bottom of the pyramid. Right. Um, but then if you abolish slavery, then that could leave people scratching their heads of, well, that's part of our class system. So we can't just abolish the merchant class. Um, that, that That's how the whole system works. Okay, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, okay, so that was an interesting tangent, but you know, you can always pick out, I, I love uh, tangents like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So let's look, uh, jumping ahead, um, several episodes on your podcast, uh, up to, uh, episode 71, I believe, uh, where you talk about King George's proclamation of 1775. And this happens after the war started, but you see it as inevitable or it, uh, making independence inevitable. So how do you see that? And what was the proclamation? 
shots were really first. I mean, we have a few incidents before 1775, like the, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, things like that. But shots really didn't get fired in anger between troops and civilians until Lexington and Concord in April 1775. And through this whole thing, through this this whole dispute that had really been going on for years and, and, and almost no one had been killed up to this point, um, everybody thought it was just going to get settled politically at some point. They would negotiate a mutually agreeable um, uh, situation and everybody would go back to, to living as normal. And even after Lexington and Concord, a great many colonial leaders said, all right, well, now we've shown Britain that we're serious, that we're really willing to fight over these issues. Surely now they're going to come back with a compromise and we can negotiate a solution to this whole thing. Um, and the way they went about trying to present a compromise to Britain was that they basically took the position that Parliament had gotten out of control. And surely the king, who is our guarantor of our freedoms and our liberties, would notice this now and that he would go to Parliament and say, whoa, guys, you've really gone too far with my colonies. We need to set up a free and fair system so that everyone's happy. Uh, unfortunately, King George was not ready to do that. He was one of the leading hawks in London who kept telling the Parliament that you have to hold a firm hand over these colonies. You have to show them who's boss or they're never going to learn. And he made a declaration in, or a proclamation in 1775 that the colonies were in a state of rebellion and that Parliament needed to come down hard on them. He made a speech at the opening of Parliament in, I think it was in October, saying that know you've got to clean up this mess in 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 the colonies and you've got to do it with military action i think he said it's come to blows is the word he used uh, so that really ended all hope in america that there could be a negotiated solution to this problem and a reunion with england and it was when they learned about that over the next few months december january february because it took time for word to get across the ocean they really started saying to themselves, yeah, there's there's really no way out of this but independence or a hangman's noose. Um, one of us is going to win in a fight, and we're either going to be independent or we're going to be hanged as traitors. And that's when they started really talking about a declaration of independence. Hey, everyone. Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved, Plus, they're covered by insurance. 
A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Uh, something you noted is that uh, the proclamation made independence inevitable. Now, uh, not war, but independence. By that, do you mean that America was on a course where even if it had lost the Revolutionary War, eventually at some point would have gained independence? Or do you mean independence just in the 1776 sense where they proclaimed it and then the war started? It, it, it prompted the the, the movement that universally toward independence. I mean, it got, you know, all the moderates on board for independence when they saw that there was no way Britain was going to back down. Of course, war had already started. We'd already had Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill by this time, um, and then captured Fort Ticonderoga, various things like that. So there were things going on. War had started. The question was, can we quickly put a stop to this or not? I think once blood was shed, it was going to become very difficult for for things to be resolved. Britain really would have had to come back and say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna give you everything you asked for. This has really gone too far. We're sorry about all that." And and there was no way Britain was ready to do that. Uh, funny thing, what they they did come back with that in about 1778, and uh, by that time, you know, America had rejected. It. If they come back with that in 1775, I think they could have avoided this whole thing. So yeah, a few years too late. But yeah, uh, I think once once war had started and if britain had had to put down this war in a really brutal way where they were massacring people and hanging the leaders i think the hard feelings would have lingered for such a long time that america probably would have had a second war for independence a few decades later it just it it would have happened at some point after that right it would have been a i don't want to say controlling in afghanistan but um yes you might be militarily superior but if there's a low-level insurrection that's constantly happening, then it might get to the point where you just want to cut your losses and leave. So that could have played out very differently. Well, yeah, you have to remember the whole reason Britain had colonies in the first place was to make more money for Britain. If they were going to become a financial drain where they were constantly having to spend men and treasure to to, to maintain these foreign possessions, they just yeah, wasn't worth it to them. Right. Cut your losses at some point. but. Yeah. It's it's very conceivable, like you described, that America could have remained a colony. Canada, right to the north, very similar in customs and culture and language and everything else to the United States. Australia, very similar, much more similar than India, for example, which wasn't independent until 1947. So, yeah, could have played out very differently. Yep. Uh, so uh, thanks for getting into these details and adding complexity to a bunch of issues that I think people just kind of gloss over. I'd like to telescope out and then wrap up a discussion on something that we were discussing a bit before I hit record on this podcast, and that was the continu continuity that you see between the colonial and revolutionary period in the United States to today. I recently wrapped up a multi-part podcast series with a guest on the Civil War, and uh, the one of the conclusions we came away with is that Two of the most defining wars in American history were the Revolutionary and Civil Wars. The Revolutionary War answered the question of whether or not America would be a nation. And, of course, it gave us the founding documents that guide us 
But the Civil War was arguably more important because it determined what kind of nation we would be. Would we continue to tolerate slavery? The balance of power in terms of national political representation moves from the South to the North. The United States is not thought of as a collection of states where presidents would say the United States are, but they would use a singular form the United States is. The um, pathway of Alexander Hamilton is followed instead of Thomas Jefferson of manufacturing. And you said um, you don't quite agree with that. So can you tell me what your take on that idea is? Well, I, I, yeah, I touched on this concept a little earlier, but basically the idea that the Civil War never would have happened but for the ideals of the American Revolution, that the notions of all men are created equal, the notions that there are certain inalienable rights uh, really form the foundation of the divide that became the Civil War uh, a, dec a century later. Um, people don't understand how revolutionary the revolution really was. A lot of people say, well, it wasn't really that much of a revolution. The colonial leaders became the state leaders. Uh, there was no real transfer of wealth or political power or, or any of those things uh, or social power. Slaves remained slaves for the most part, those sorts of things. But there really was a change. Uh, it didn't break out all at once, but it began the kernel of a change that um, society had to become more egalitarian, that political power had to be dispersed among all the people. Um, and it's, of course, been a, a, a alarmingly slow process to spread that, you know, the voting power and other things out to some groups. But it, it did begin almost at the very beginning. People think, oh, well, white males could vote. Well, no, white males couldn't vote um, early on. Uh, there were very strict property requirements that meant you had to be quite wealthy to vote um, when the country first started. And um, getting rid of those property requirements was, a, was one of the first big voting rights uh, movements in this country. And then, of course, um, abolition and freeing slaves and all that, all that came out of the ideals that were popularized by the revolution. Had we not had that revolution, the spread of those ideals would have probably gone in a very different way. That's a very good point. I uh, talked with a professor who looked at utopian communities in America, where you'd have these towns that would try to live in communism or not use draft animals or other experiments. And it seems goofy, but a lot of the reason they did that, mostly in the early to mid-1800s, is because the Revolutionary War, it against all reasonable expectation, it succeeds. And you have a nation that is using democracy, and they consciously refer to ancient Athens and other practices. And intellectuals in Europe are scratching their heads thinking, this thing from 2,000 years ago in ancient Athens, people are basing a government on that, and it's succeeding. I mean, is someone else going to come along and base a government on the military warrior culture of the Spartans? I mean, what's next? So it made utopian communities think, hey, let's dust off those history books and see what else we can pull out from antiquity and give it a go. Hey, anything is possible. And a lot of those communities did not work. It's part of the glorious laboratory of government um, in the United States. And I recommend checking that out. But yeah, that is true. It could be very um, interesting and revolutionary for people to take it. So is that something that you see as being the, the great legacy of the Revolutionary War that that I mean, this is this is what imprinted the United States with this DNA that informed the ideology that would lead to the Civil War and other conflicts. 
And not only that, yes, yes to that, but also it spread the idea throughout the world. I don't think we would have had a French Revolution without the American Revolution. I don't think we would have seen democracy spread throughout Europe and many other places without the American Revolution. I mean, we have to remember that prior to the American Revolution, almost everywhere in the world was governed by a monarch. Some were absolute monarchs, some were limited monarchs, but they were all monarchs. The idea of a republic, of an elected government, was a fundamental uh, change in the way the world looked at government. And it all began in America, and it's really spread all over the world. Well, there is a lot more to cover here, and you have over six dozen episodes on this topic, and your catalog is growing. So, uh, Michael, thank you for uh, discussing all this with us. If people want to learn more about you and your podcast, where is the best place to find you online? Uh, I have a website which will lead you to both my podcast and I also have a written blog if you like reading rather than listening. Uh, if you go to www.amrevpodcast.com, uh, you can have access to all of that stuff. Great. I'll put that in the show notes and people can check it out there. Michael, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Well, that is the episode for today. And I really appreciate you listening because it's you, the audience, that makes this show happen. And it's also you, the audience, that grows this show. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers, and especially our spy masters, Baron Fraser, Carl from Norway, Chris Romain, Moondoggy from Ohio, and Rick Knowlton. And I'll explain what that means in a second. If you would like to help support this show and help it reach new listeners who haven't discovered it yet, there's four easy ways for you to do it. First, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on the listening app of your choice. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunplugpodcast.com. Two, like us on Facebook and share posts about new episodes. Three, check out sponsors for the show. This is the best way to help me pay the bills because if sponsors see the audience is interested in their products, they will keep advertising. Four, you can become a member of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com slash unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free, all 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of Intelligence Officer, you can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Ottoman Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the Eunuch, the Harem Servant Girl, and the Soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of Spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the Scouts and Intelligence Officers, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three-pack of hardcover history books, plus you will be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history, and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com slash unplugged. Again, that's patreon.com slash unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.